Oligarch alert. Elon Musk is closing in on buying Twitter. What does that mean for the rest of us? Amateur hours. The Kremlin accuses its adversaries of plotting to kill a Russian journalist. The evidence does not add up. Plus, journalism on the run. Mexico and its culture of violence against reporters who are killed with impunity. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we put the global media in all their forms under the microscope. When Elon Musk started tweeting about social media platforms and online ethics, a lot of users concluded he was trolling. The world's richest man has a penchant for pushing people's buttons. But his decision to offer $44 billion for the site reflects how badly he wants it. Musk has called himself a free speech absolutist. He's described Twitter as a digital town square. And that's led analysts to assume that under Musk's watch, Twitter will loosen its content moderation policies, which has disturbing implications for hate speech and its effects. There have also been suggestions that he will introduce paid subscriptions, ban user anonymity, and add an edit function, letting people change their tweets after posting them. There is also the question of what to do about Donald Trump and his ilk. Elon Musk is on the verge of taking control of a platform where everyone seems to be angry about something. And it is not yet clear if the billionaire knows just what he's getting into. Our starting point this week, the world's biggest microblogging site, Five Voices, on what the future holds for Twitter. Big breaking news this afternoon, Elon Musk's Twitter takeover is a go. After weeks of uncertainty, Elon Musk struck a deal to buy Twitter at a price of roughly 44 billion bucks. This means that the world's richest man is going to effectively control one of the most influential platforms in the internet. This is a big moment. There is a lot of speculation around what this means, what the plans are for Elon Musk and his vision for, for what Twitter should become. He campaigned on free speech and he said, I'm buying the company to make it more free. We don't know what he will do. He's made vague allusions to the concept of free speech, but hasn't said much about what that actually means to him or how that might impact the policies of the platform. Twitter is a war zone. If somebody's gonna jump in the war zone, it's like, okay, you're in the arena, let's go. What a lot of researchers suspect is that uh, Musk is gonna find out just how hard it is to moderate a site like Twitter and change things, but not in a wholesale way. We have a tendency to paint him as a kind of blundering evil genius. A few hours ago, you made an offer to buy Twitter. He's not that at all. I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech uh, where it's going to be more likely a return to previous iterations of Twitter where free speech was maximalized and where trolls ran rampant and where maybe spam bots continue to run rampant, right? This is a Twitter that we've had before. He claims to be a, a free speech absolutist, right? So that seems to suggest that he wants to see far less content moderation on, on the platform. However, under human rights law, freedom of expression is, is not an absolute right. There are certain limits. 
what you can say online, particularly if speech constitutes um, hate speech or advocacy of hatred or if it constitutes incitement to violence. So this is not a binary question of whether we need less moderation or more moderation or more censorship. It's a question of, of better content moderation. And what we absolutely don't want to see is Twitter willfully turning a, a blind eye to, to violent and abusive speech that we've seen flourish on, on the platform. So Musk wants Twitter to be this proverbial town square, right? Uh, but we've seen across platforms and not just on Twitter, hate campaigns, smear campaigns, online hate translating to actual real riots in cities, fake news, women and journalists being targeted, uh, trolled and maligned online. Even in the presence of moderation, there's enough targeting that happens on social media today. But having said that, you cannot write off moderation uh, completely as a futile exercise. Without moderation, a user-generated content platform like Twitter would stand to lose trust among its users. Twitter is not exactly the public sphere. It's a heavy concentration of journalists, of people in Hollywood, people in politics, uh, people who are, you know, elite, right? Most people in the world don't tweet. In the United States, it's something like 97% of all tweets are produced by 25% of the adult users. It's like maybe three to 5% of the American, you know, adult population, right? So it's an incredibly small amount of people who do most of the tweeting. And they're the ones who are, I think, you know, justifiably worried because Elon Musk has a pretty horrible track record about what he does and how he interacts with people in those spaces. The one thing Elon Musk is right about is that free speech online is in danger. But the folks that are being most harmed by deplatforming and censorship on social media are not people like Donald Trump who can issue a press release and have it picked up by every media outlet in the world. It's Arab and Muslim folks whose speech is routinely removed from social media by automated anti-terrorism filters. It's LGBTQ folks whose speech and content is regularly deplatformed. It's marginalized people, black and brown activists, whose speech is often over-moderated because platforms enforce their rules unevenly. One of the things that Elon Musk has said that is at least positive in concept is the idea of open sourcing Twitter's algorithm. Now that's easier said than done and people may find once they're staring at a wall of code that it doesn't actually tell them very much. Um, but the idea of platforms being more transparent, opening up access to others who actually could understand how these algorithms are working, how they're shaping our discourse, um, could be a positive step. Yeah, I could technically afford it. Um, I, I had that. I had that. Um, but 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 it's but what I'm saying is this is this is this is a this is not a, a, a way to sort of make money. Twitter is not necessarily a money-making thing for him. So I don't care about the economics at all. Okay. But I also think uh, if you look at how the deal is structured, he has taken a 12.5 billion margin loan, which is secured against his stock at Tesla. So I think he might care about the economics of it a little bit. We've seen so far that the ad business hasn't worked very well for Twitter and subscriptions could be one way to go. But uh, the way Twitter is used by communities, I wonder what kind of product would work best uh, for paid users. He's figured out one reason to own Twitter is that it helps amplify my business investments. I mean, he can move markets with a simple tweet. Um, he has gotten in trouble for moving markets with simple tweets. So Twitter 
has a tendency of making him richer, getting him waves and waves and waves of adoring praise. And I think that if you view his purchase from that framework, then you understand what's happened and what's going to happen much more clearly. Elon Musk has also claimed that um, Twitter should authenticate real humans aimed at, at, at preventing bots and, and spam and fake accounts. However, pseudonymity and anonymity on, on the platform are absolutely crucial to protecting users, um, especially those who might have opinions that don't align with you know, dominant powers in, in, in their countries or, or around the world. And the governments might, may be able to force Twitter um, to disclose the identities of, of users and, and target them. So anonymity is, is absolutely crucial for people to, to express themselves freely and, and safely. Ultimately, what all this boils down to is power. Who's going to have the power in our country? Are we going to make these decisions as a democracy, or is this going to be Elon Musk, a bazillionaire who just plays by his own set of rules? We have, for centuries, decades certainly, uh, experienced a media landscape dominated by the rich and the powerful. It, this is really no different. And I encourage anyone who is really bothered by this to log off and, you know, vote with your feet or vote with your clicks and get off Facebook, get off Instagram, get off Twitter. You, you, you don't want to fuel these billionaires' influences, don't use it. This is a cold, dark take, but we live, we live in a capitalist society and this is just sort of the inevitable outcome. I see a lot of people in my Twitter timeline right now saying, I'm going to leave the platform. The reality is until we fight for policies to ensure that there are places people can actually go with better content moderation, better privacy practices, uh, we have a problem that can't be solved by consumer choices. It's a problem that needs to be solved through policy, which is why we need lawmakers to act, not billionaires. From Silicon Valley to Moscow now, where Vladimir Putin has accused his enemies in the West of plotting to assassinate one of Russia's most prominent journalists slash propagandists. Johanna Hus is here with more. Well, Richard, the allegations are pretty bizarre. This past week, Putin claimed that Russia's security services, the FSB, foiled a Western-backed plot to kill Vladimir Solovyov, a TV anchor on Russia One. Сегодня утром органами Федеральной службы безопасности пресечена деятельность террористической группы, которая планировала нападение и убийство одного из известных российских тележурналистов. According to Putin, the U.S. worked with Ukraine to recruit members of a neo-Nazi group in Russia in order to carry out the attack against Solovyov, a staunch Kremlin supporter and other media personalities. The FSB later released a video shared widely on state TV showing the arrest of the alleged plotters and their hideouts. And this is where the story gets really dicey. Take the items the FSB reportedly seized, Nazi material, drugs, guns. It all felt a little staged. And even more telling was a note allegedly written to one of the attackers, signed, quote unquote, signature unclear, as though someone was following their instructions a little too literally. Stranger still, there were three copies of The Sims video game, which suggested someone might have confused phone SIM cards with the game and planted them there. 
The alleged target of the plot, Solovyov, is one of the Kremlin's chief propagandists. And to give you a sense of what he is all about, this is just one of the things he had to say about Russia's campaign in Ukraine. If you think that we on Ukraine, think Anchors like Solovyov are central to the Kremlin's messaging, and this latest fake video wouldn't be the first time that they propped up Russian intelligence hoaxes. Just prior to the invasion, Moscow released footage allegedly showing Ukrainian forces attacking Russian territory, videos that independent journalists later proved to be fake, but was all over news channels the Kremlin controls, including Vladimir Solovyov's channel, Rossiya One. Thanks, Joe. Outside of active war zones such as Ukraine, there is no more dangerous country for journalists than Mexico. Over the past four months alone, eight media workers that we know of have been killed. Reporters are at the mercy of drug cartels there. And the narcotics industry's ties to corrupt politicians and police forces means that journalists have made all kinds of enemies. Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, came into office promising to put an end to corruption and impunity, but is now seen as part of the problem by members of the news media. Despite the creation of programs and special prosecutions designed to protect reporters, the vast majority of murders still go unpunished. Very few charges, let alone convictions. More and more journalists are forced into hiding. More and more stories go unreported. Not that any of that has affected the president's popularity. Flo Phillips now on Mexico, impunity, and the journalists who, despite it all, are still on the job. It's March 26, 2019, and Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador, better known by his acronym AMLO, arrives at his morning press conference, a daily event known as the Mañanera. Among the journalists there that day, a veteran reporter, Lourdes Maldonado, who's traveled more than 2,300 kilometers from Tijuana to Mexico City with a request for the president. She was right to fear for her life. Less than two years later, she was dead. Maldonado's case is particularly important because she had recognized the state apparatus at her disposal. She talked to the president, she asked for the state's protection. Nevertheless, she was killed. We have not yet been able to understand why Maldonado is no longer with us, but we know the attacks against journalists are not directed at just any journalist, but towards those who are investigating corruption, human rights abuses, or cases related to narco-politics. And there are clear patterns at play. Whenever a journalist is killed in Mexico, the guessing game begins. Was the murder committed by a drug cartel? ordered by a kingpin threatened by the reporting? Or was it an agent of the state, a police force corrupted by the drug trade, or ordered by a politician in the cartel's pocket? Lourdes Maldonado was one of four media workers killed in January. Another, Roberto Toledo, worked for a regional online news outlet, Monitor Machoacan, known for its reporting on local government corruption. Nosotros no estamos armados. Nosotros no traemos armas. 
nuestra única defensa es una pluma. Announcing Toledo's death on social media, his boss, Armando Linares, said their reporting had drawn unwanted attention. El equipo de Monitor Michoacán ha venido sufriendo una serie de amenazas de muerte. El día de hoy, finalmente, estas amenazas se cumplieron. Two months later, Linares was murdered. It's now eight killings and counting, this year alone. And when the cases are investigated, another pattern emerges, one of impunity. In many murder cases, they only get as far as investigating the messenger. They don't go after the person who ordered the killing. So it's unclear where the attack really comes from. And that generates increasing impunity. In Mexico, when you kill a journalist, nothing happens. That's because more than 50% of these attacks are committed by state agents and the state is unwilling to investigate itself. The authorities try to justify themselves by saying that these attacks against the press are just collateral damage given the violence this country suffers. The truth is that neither citizens nor journalists trust the federal or state prosecutors, because that is where impunity comes from. It's been that way for two decades in Mexico, under multiple governments, and journalists are still endangered. In 2012, President Felipe Calderón established a program called The Mecanismo, designed to protect reporters and human rights workers. However, the Mecanismo, which relies mainly on relocating journalists to other parts of the country, was criticized then, as it is now, for being unreliable and underfunded. Remember Lourdes Maldonado. She had been enrolled in the Mecanismo for more than a month when she was murdered in January. Her colleague, Armando Linares, was still signing up to the program when he was killed in March. We contacted numerous journalists to ask about their experiences under the Mecanismo. Just one of them agreed to speak with us, and only under certain conditions. Because of fears for her security, she sent us voice messages. I asked her why she decided to join the program. Because at that moment, it was the only hand outstretched to save my life. I've seen some serious things, but I overlooked them all because they weren't impacting my work. I still felt safe. I never felt my life was in danger like it is now. For now, the mechanismo has worked, but that's because I'm far, far away from home. I've lost everything. What bothers me about the mechanismo is that in order to protect you, you have to run. But the criminals get to stay on the streets, close to your home, close to your family. And under AMLO, the conditions have grown worse. Attacks on journalists are up by 85%. Buenos días, Presidente. Eh, Mireya López, del programa Listening Post de la cadena Al Jazeera. So we sent our producer in Mexico City to the Mañanera to ask the President directly why journalism in the country remains so dangerous, with more and more attacks, given the promise he made in 2018 to end corruption and impunity. ¿Qué ha pasado con esa promesa? What happened to that promise, President? Do you think that the lack of impunity has in fact fueled more attacks and murders of journalists? Your question is about these unfortunate events. My reply is that there is no impunity and we are working every day in order to protect citizens. We have inherited a very complicated situation. 
It takes time to change things, and especially to tackle the problem of these murders. We are very sorry about the assassinations of these journalists, and we are investigating them. There are open files on all of their cases, and in most of them, people have already been arrested. Both the murderers and the orchestrators are now in prison. That last statement is factually incorrect. There have been arrests in some cases, but the vast majority of journalist murders result in no charges or convictions. Not that Mexican voters seem overly bothered by that. The president remains hugely popular. He won a referendum earlier this month with an overwhelming majority. AMLO's populist appeal plays well with voters, as does his accessibility. His mañanera represents a complete departure from his predecessors, who were more elusive, less visible. During the Calderón administration, the combination of the National Guard and the army meant it was impossible to get close to the president. You would be attacked or taken away. Under Peña Nieto, it was worse. Now you can speak out more. The mañaneras are an opportunity to ask questions, even if they don't want you to. The mañaneras are important moments of dialogue with the president. But we have to be very careful in thinking that what the president says is an exercise in transparency. The mañaneras are a way of controlling information and public debate in Mexico. It's a hierarchy in which he has the power, and there have been many instances when a journalist has asked a question and is attacked by the president himself, then threatened on social media and even on the streets. Taking pot shots from their president. That, too, comes with a job for journalists in Mexico. And despite everything, the threats, the attacks, the many faces of adversity, they're still on it. I'd just left my job at the newspaper Reforma, and I thought, actually, I wouldn't want other journalists to go through what I've been through. Being told I had to leave the state, my house robbed, a gun held to my head. Now, I've set up a journalist's network here in Sonora, and we've started training ourselves. We are on the right path, but I don't see a clear light. If you ask me if the future of journalism in Mexico is in the hands of the state, I would say no. I don't see a chance for its survival there. I see a chance in journalism itself. I believe that journalism is resilient. And finally, this past month in Jerusalem has been tense and violent. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is at the center of it, and it's Ramadan. Israeli police have repeatedly raided the Al-Aqsa, firing rubber-tipped bullets at worshippers there, using drones to spray tear gas at them. Israel's justification for these attacks has ranged from retaliation for some stone-throwing to going after civilians the Israelis allege are plotting attacks. At times such as this, the presence of journalists, local or international, trained and equipped, or just phone-wielding citizen reporters is critical. Many of them put their work online, 
and Instagram is their current platform of choice. It is packed with news material. We're leaving you now with some suggestions of Instagram accounts worth following and some podcasts worth listening to. Starting with Let's Talk Palestine, which delivers concise explainer swipe posts covering topics such as Israeli settler colonialism for beginners. Eye on Palestine posts prolifically, breaking news for its 2.8 million followers. Documenting Palestine chronicles the evolution of Palestinian identity through posts on art, culture, and history. Two podcasts worth a listen are Rethinking Palestine and The Palestine Pod. Rethinking Palestine is hosted by academic and author Yara Hawari. We are a virtual think tank that aims to foster public debate on Palestinian human rights and self-determination. It features diverse analytical voices discussing Palestinian issues. The Palestine Pod is co-hosted by a Palestinian-American lawyer and a Jewish-American comedian. It takes on an eclectic mix of topics. Give some of those suggestions a try, and the algorithms are likely to recommend other accounts putting out quality news content covering different angles of the Palestine story. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.